Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Regenerative by Design podcast, where we will be getting to the root of health, climate, economics, and food. I am your host, Joni Kinwall Moore. I'm an RN, an ethnobotanist, and the founder of Snacktivist Foods. Join me on this journey as we explore the ideas, stories, and personalities behind the regenerative food system movement. Food is the connection between people and planet. In a world where pandemics, climate change, and war have made us feel so disconnected and vulnerable, regenerative agriculture has become a powerful force for positive transformation and hope. Here, regenerative thought leaders share how agriculture and food design can create a more resilient system. I mean, it's like more of a niche audience, which is fun. Um, Farmers, people in the food space, people in the value-added processing space as well. And today we're going to talk about a concept that I call regenerative by design. This is a process that includes creative thinking, long-term planning, and of course, continuous learning um, that can all be applied to food, ag, and also manufacturing to help us build a healthy, resilient, profitable ag and food sector. I'm the founder of Snackvis, as Claude said, and Don. And Snackvis makes a line of delicious grain-based foods that are made from regenerative, diverse ingredients. Our line is allergy-friendly, soil, water, and carbon-focused, all while radically impacting human nutrition. So um, from here, we're going to take you on a little journey in a micro world. And I um, want you guys to write down questions because I'm hoping you have some great questions to go over at the end of the session. So I drove from yesterday down from Portland, um, which is just north of here, hour and a half or so. And, you know, really had the opportunity to drive through miles and miles of really beautiful farmland. And, you know, driving through there, I, I frequently am one of those people that stops and like looks at fields and the guys in the pickups are always like, what's that? What are you doing? <laughs> As I'm out there like poking around the fields and wondering like where these crops are going. Interestingly enough, I couldn't help but to reflect on the fact that probably three quarters of everything I drove through is going to get exported overseas before it ever gets processed or anything. It'll be harvested, put on container ships in Seattle and off to Asian and Middle Eastern markets. Um, and the Palouse region is really distinct for many reasons. Um, the rolling hills are, you know, reflective of millennia of, you know, beautiful, rich silt being built up from glacial like Missoula and also from strong winds that have blown across the continent for millennia. And um, also what's really unique about the Palouse is that it's really only been intensively farmed for just over 100 years, which when you think about it on a global perspective, like that's really crazy. I mean, most places in the world have been farmed for thousands of years. So it's a really unique situation we have here. So when I look at what we have in our own backyard and in the Northwest, to me, I, I see that we have the potential to be real global leaders in doing something different. Like, really looking at our agriculture and our food systems through a different lens that really looks at a regenerative process that starts with the soil, goes all the way up through the food system. And to me, this food system in an ideal way would honor soil health, nutrient density, biodiversity, and economic sovereignty. The artisan greens movement is the first move in what I think will become a sweeping change that ripples around the world. And starting in the field, this will trigger a transformation that will touch everything from the family farm to cleaners, millers, manufacturers, and eventually even consumers. Now let's talk about grain, because grain's a fascinating thing. Um, you know, grain, grains and humans are really have a mutual, like almost like a symbiotic relationship. They're intimately connected. 
Americans. And for a long time, it's been commonly accepted that agriculture developed, you know, really around the notion of grains and legume farming for over 10,000 years. Most of the history books are really focused on what happened in the Levant, where the Fertile Crescent, and the focus of Neolithic founder crops, which do include ancient wheats, but also include barley, vetches, legumes, and flax. But, you know, in other parts of the world, there was also really early agriculture, and we had, like, Neolithic founder crops in Asia, which include millet and sesame, and also really early crops in uh, the Americas as well, including chia and amaranth and quinoa. So I think it's really fascinating to think that agriculture has been happening really since like the last ice age. And in fact, some of the recent archaeological digs that they've been looking at show carbon dating going all the way back to 23,000 years ago and evidence that there was some farming happening at the height of the last ice age. Now, in perspective, that was only 15,000 years after the, the Neanderthals disappeared. I mean, that's like crazy ancient. So, you know, I think that farming is so deeply embedded in the, the roots and in the DNA of humans that it's something that we need to really hold sacred. And grains are really central to this. And there's a reason why grains are given mention in almost every, every religious text globally to the importance and the, the reverence that surrounds the grain industry. But things have changed. Um, you know, the, the earth is getting warmer ever since the last ice age. It's been considerably warming. And grains are now globally representing 15, 15 to 40% of the average caloric intake around the world. Now, depending on what population you're looking at, that changes. Definitely is affected by socioeconomic group as well as geography. And more, but more than 50% of the grain that's grown in the U.S. today is actually fed to animals. And so we're in a very unique perspective here in the pollution in the inland Northwest where the vast majority of the grains that we're growing are actually human grade. They're for people to consume. That's an interesting, that's an interesting fact. So what has happened in the last few years? Um, you know, if you guys are at all like, you know, reading up on current diets or pop culture, you'll quickly see that we're having a massive backlash. And I call it kind of like the green, the green demonization movement. And, you know, we've really gone from a species that um, carefully cultivated these precious grains, found ways to store them, found ways to prepare them so that they would last. And it was, you know, deeply revered. But now there are fundamental shifts in grain cultivation, preparation, and consumption patterns have dramatically altered this human grain interface. And it's really causing people to look at grain differently. Grain now in America is subject to this major backlash. And many people are eliminating them entirely from their diet um, and turning to a diet heavy in meats and fresh vegetables, like in the Whole30 or Paleo Keto diets. From a climate perspective, to me, this is crazy. We can't feed 10 billion people on a you know, constant supply of fresh kale, avocados, and grass-fed beef. I mean, it's just, no, no offense to grass-fed beef, but I don't see that working for 10 billion people around the world. But it really begs us to take a hard look at, at why America is shunning our amber waves of grain. And let's look at what the current standard American diet, or SAD, um, is made of. Um, we know that it now contains very high levels of processed foods. And in fact, these food-like substances make up almost 60% of our daily calories in America. 60%. And they're really not even, they're like formally thought of as food. They're not really food anymore. Fast food, other processed ready-to-consume foods have all contributed to the rise of diet-related disease. And these epidemics include diabetes, meta uh, metabolic syndrome in general, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. 
It also contributes to chronic inflammatory disorders, obesity, and cancer. Let's take a closer look. So between 1970 and 2010, grain consumption jumped over 50%, and mostly consisting of processed grains like corn and wheat. Now, wheat consumption in the U.S. peaked in 2000 at 100, 137 pounds a year on average per person. So that's, you know, really just under a half a pound a day in 2000. And keep in mind that this, is, this was grain that was engineered for yield, grain that was engineered for caloric intake, not selected or engineered for uh, nutrient density. It was actually also driven by the need to fatten up cattle, you know, so you think about the genetic engineering of these cereal crops that are really promoting weight gain. So this is at the same time that we saw the rise of the anti-carbon movement. You probably remember Atkins. Um, Atkins was probably the first popular anti-green diet that hit. It was very carb-focused and it peaked in popularity around 2003 to 2004, so just after this apex of wheat consumption in our nation. The gluten-free craze um, also came on, and I work in the gluten-free sector. It really swept the nation starting in the early 2000s and kind of peaked up around 2010 to 2015, and followed then by the grain-free diets like Whole30, Paleo, Keto, which are still really popular today, where people eliminate grains altogether because when they do, they're usually eliminating these processed grains that most Americans eat. So it's not like they're eliminating high quality grains. They're eliminating garbage. And they're like, whoa, my digestion's better. I lost weight. I'm not as inflamed. I feel better. And I, love, I lose weight. So you can see why people are like, oh, maybe there's something to it. But is it grain that's making us sick? Like, let's think about this. Um, you know, it, when you look around the world, and I was really struck when I did some work in Korea, and I was in Seoul, and I was talking to a group of women at the, um, their equivalent of their USDA in Seoul. And we were looking at diet trends and import-export ratios in, in and out of Euro um, Europe and Asia and U.S. And I was like, hey, guys, you know, where are you at on protein as a fat? You know, are you finding in Korean markets that people are interested in, like, upping their protein, eating more meat, cutting back on grains and carbs? And they literally laughed at me. They were like, duh, don't you know that around the world everybody knows the reasons why Americans are fat is not because of grains. It's because of, like, all the other garbage you guys eat. Like in Korea, if you want to be healthy, you want to lose weight, you, you stick to a grain-based diet. And I, that really struck me as something very, very fascinating. So I personally believe that it's the combination of these um, heavy processing, high-yield, low-nutrition grain breeding programs, heavy use of chemicals um, in, both food, in both agriculture and processing that have created this backlash effect. And, um, you know, really what it's done to our... Um, endocrine system, our microbiome, and our digestive. So this perfect storm kind of comes at an interesting timing. And, you know, here we are in 2022, and I'm like, I don't mean to be a jerk, but I'm like, things are great, right? I, I mean, you look out, look around, and it's, it's an interesting time. And here we are in a post-pandemic world facing disruptive global supply chains, volatile prices, inflation, a nationwide health crisis, Excessive levels of natural disasters that are thought to be linked to climate change, biodiversity loss, soil health concerns, and even with the UN and what, you know, love or hate the UN, they're like, hey guys, we maybe got 60 harvests left before we really run into problems with our global soil health. And, you know, to me, this is a big wake up call. And, um, you know, let's think about how we got here because it wasn't really through bad intentions we've gotten through here. It's been through great intentions. Like, 
Look at World War II, the last huge global event that was catastrophic to everybody around the world. The, the, at that time, we were facing massive global hunger and famine around the world, like horribly catastrophic. All of the major systems that were in place were disrupted through the World War I and World War II. And we see how when the war came to an end and we started getting everybody focused on the issues at hand, remit, like creating a remedy for global hunger was obviously a really top priority. And that innovation following World War II brought industrialization of food processing so we could process food at a faster, more efficient rate, which would make it reach bigger populations of people faster. Also brought major um, innovation when it comes to agriculture and increasing yields to levels that farmers of like days gone by would have never even believed was possible. However, what we're seeing now are some unexpected consequences of these modern food system advancements. We now have this epidemic of malnutrition in the face of excessive calories, which is an interesting thing because in, in many ways, we've solved a lot of the food access issues, but we still have a huge body of people who have access to calories, but are severely malnourished. And it's like the new American famine is that it's malnutrition in the face of having access to calories. And we do know that obesity and diet-related disease are highest in our poorest populations in our nation. This costs healthcare billions of dollars a year, and we don't even calculate the effect it has on quality of life or productivity. You know, like I'm sure you could probably even figure out the effects against the GDP. We don't usually calculate these long-term consequences. And the fact is, is that diet-related disease is still the leading cause of death here in America and around the world, and this should be a wake-up call. We're facing the consequences of these decades of practice and accelerated topsoil degradation and impact, um, impacted biodiversity is affecting millions of acres around the world that are struggling to stay productive. And with this loss of intact rhizosphere combined with overuse of chemicals and monocropping has created chemically resistant pests and weeds. Access to water for irrigation is now a matter of life or death for many family farms that I talk to in the Southwest, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, and in California. Um, with major aquifers and reservoirs at critically low levels, it's a serious thing and it's actually causing many family farmers to have to abandon their farms. Many farmers feel like they're trapped in a system that has fostered dependency on these chemical inputs, proprietary seeds, and irrigation that's now pushing them to the brink of financial ruin. So is it any wonder why farmers are leading the nation in suicide rates? And I know this is like the cherry on the top of the doom and gloom slide, but we do need to address that farmers are 3.5 times higher to commit suicide than any other population in America. Um, they are like leading the charge when it comes to suicide rates. To me, that is a major signal that we need to wake up and we need to do things differently. So... I have always loved this quote. I think it was Don who first introduced me to it. Um, but you never change things by fighting against an existing reality. To change something, you need to build a new model that makes the old model obsolete. And I like this approach because instead of like playing the typical American blame game of like, oh, we're here and it's your fault and it's your fault. It's like, no, it, like let's get beyond that. What do we need to do to move forward and make things work better? How do we create a new system that's going to optimize what resources we have and our technologies? And I don't want that last slide to make you feel hopeless. I mean, there's already too many things in the world going on that are pretty depressing. But how do we really look at this as a disruptive event that allows us to paint a brighter picture for the future? What I want you to see in all of this is actually opportunity. 
And after all, the cataclysmic circumstances that created this capacity of the innovation and technology that we saw in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. I mean, think about like how horrible it was coming out of World War II, but it gave them the opportunity to think outside the box. It gave, it gave like humans the ability to think in ways that they had never thought before. So I want you to think of disruptive events as like an opportunity to do things better. And I see um, some serious opportunities to create a better food system. Now, I want to invite you into an ex- kind of an experience that I call the regenerative by design process. And to really understand what this means, like first we need to talk about um, value diversity. And it's kind of funny because like my whole life, I always thought about value just as like, oh, value. I never thought about value diversity and about like this whole process of looking at something and instead of looking at like two things that it is commonly thought of as being their values, like take a couple steps back and look at it in a systems lens. Like what are the big, you know, value pieces that we have? So looking at grain and the way we've treated grain for the last 50 years has been a real focus on calories and yields. And for good reason. Um, but what I think we need to start doing now is in addition to looking at calories and yields, because certainly they're always part of the equation, we also need to look at nutrient density and breeding for nutrient-dense cereals um, and pulses. We need to look at biodiversity, bringing biodiversity back to our agricultural settings. Um, and that includes crop biodiversity, but also beyond that, you know, um, like Scott talks about, like like birds, deer, like all of the, all of the above. Insects, of course. Um, water is like the new gold, especially in certain parts of the country where it's becoming so scarce that um, it's more valuable than anything else. Soil health and carbon. Um, interestingly enough, carbon is actually becoming a major conversation piece. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. So incredible advancements are being made in these other areas, but they're being like slowly trickled into the agricultural sector. And um, we need to make sure that with any system, we're looking at both sides of the equation because we know everything always balances out in nature. Like the law of nature is to create balance. And so if we're only looking at one side of the equation, the other side of the equation will eventually come and bite us, um, which is happening right now. So we can no longer view water or synthetic nitrogen as an infinite cheap resource. And this is gonna, this alone is going to drive huge changes in agriculture. Um, and especially this year with the, you know, synthetics fertilizers being scarce and expensive, we see a lot of people who have been reluctant to adopt regenerative or organic practices looking to them now just because it's financially more viable. And that's going to create a lot of, uh, of innovation as well, because one thing I do know about growing up with farmers and growing up on a farm is like when the tough gets going, like when the when the times get tough, the tough get creative. Like, I mean, that's what farm kids are good at. You're like, I don't have that tool. I'm just going to figure it out. I'll build it. So I think that we're going to enter a really interesting innovation period. Um, by the end of the day, the most important thing is that we keep our lands producing food and enough of it to feed the world. That's the end goal. That's the big goal. But we're going to just need to change up our toolbox to get there. And transforming this um, opportunity will actually create huge innovation, collaboration, and business development in sectors we never even thought about. So let's think about farmers and like the next generation of farmers. This guy on the slide, you know, he's probably my age. He's the generation that left the farms. But, uh, <laughs> I just was like, all my farmer pictures weren't quite right, so I found him on a the park. But, uh, <laughs> 
was like, I need a farmer that looks a little more hipster. But um, <laughs> this is especially true in the younger generations that the farmers are looking for change. Um, and speaking of younger generations, we do have a major age issue on our farms. Um, farm succession planning is a huge, huge deal because in the United States right now, the average age of farmers is nearing 60. And many of them don't have succession plans in place. Um, my generation was like, peace out, we're not farming, there's no way. Like, my uncle would have killed me if I would have even thought about it. And because he was like, this is going nowhere. Don't you dare farm. And so, like, my whole, none of my cousins, none of us are taking over the family farms. It's really a sad thing. But I look now at my, um, my cousin's kids who are in their 20s, and they're actually kind of interested in farming. But they don't want to farm the way that their grandparents did. What they want to do and what it's going to take for this new farmer generation to take over is going to be identifying what things make them tick, like what are their needs and what are their wants as workers in the next generation. Young people in general refuse to play the quantity of a quality game, and they want to feel like they're doing something special, unique, and worth sharing. It's the age of social media and digital curiosity and younger farmers tend to leverage this and are very active in telling their stories on like social media, sometimes even reality TV. And there's a growing sentiment that food should be grown for health, special culinary reasons like terroir, or like functional food qualities. Like they want to do something special. And this allows for much of the pop culture trends that we're seeing out in communities to actually end up on the farm. And it's just interesting to note that, you know, almost overnight in the last like 25 years, we really went from a culture that was drinking Maxwell House coffee and Coors to drinking Dutch Bros and IPAs. And this market transformation is definitely significant and long-term. It's a greater reflection of the cultural needs of a new generation. And farming has to really get real about this. Otherwise, we won't have another generation of farmers. We'll have robots, and that's not quite as cool. So things like breaking the chain of chemically addicted crop crops, expensive IP-protected seeds, are motivators for the next generation. And farmers want to get up in the morning and cultivate life. Um, many farmers now roll out of bed and go, what am I going to kill today? And unfortunately, that's killing the motivation that makes a lot of farmers want to continue farming at all. So for this transformation to take place, we'll need to focus on profitability and diversification of value streams along with market opportunities. So why are we de desiring diversity? Well, there's tons of reasons that are motivating both farmers, food brands, consumers to expand their culinary horizons and choose non-commodity options. Our, on the farming side, there's a strong surge in interest for regenerative agricultural practices. Cover cropping, polyculture, livestock integration, all add resiliency to the farming system and reduce reliance on chemical inputs. They also promote water conservation, which is really important. These diverse crop rotations can also dramatically reduce endemic pests and disease in crops, in addition to creating more attractive habitat, habitat for native insects and pollinators. However, economic incentives are needed to help fuel the transition. Farmers that are reducing their reliance on commodity markets need to diversify their income streams. And many farmers, like the famous Gabe Brown, have demonstrated the ability to dramatically increase profits while reducing input costs through these models. Consumer demand in, post, in a post-Atkins world or post-Paleo world will drive green and legume sector innovation, especially as the Gen Z comes into adulthood, and they're going to be more of the climatarian generation. They're the ones that are more likely to not eat meat, and if they do, it's like grass-fed. You know, they're, they're a very interesting group of consumers, and 
they're getting to be like they're graduating from college now. So we're really starting to enter the, the time when they're going to become a formidable market force. And this um, growing awareness about ancient grains and the role that they play in nutrition and agriculture is also going to drive innovation in farming. One of the ancient grain groups that I'm particularly um, interested in, if you know me, you'll definitely know this. And, um, you know, and I do work with Julianne and Dr. Murphy and those guys. I don't see them here today, but, you know, working on the um, Diversifying Fields and Pallets grant through WSU. And I'm specifically focused on millets. Um, in this region. Millets are plural because they actually include up to eight species of different plants that are all commonly referred to as millet, which creates a lot of confusion because a millet is not a millet. And right now there's not even any regulations in the FDA on a package of product that said that requires you to differentiate what kind of millet it is, which is crazy because they're actually taxonomically not even in the same families. Okay. Yeah. Well, the last time I looked, there was like 1,300 varieties. There are. Yeah, yeah, there are. And that's what's so fascinating, too, is in India. India is really leading the charge on bringing back the germplasm diversity of millets. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of landrace varieties scattered throughout Asia, India, and Africa that are almost lost. And so thank you, Scott. There are eight that are dominantly grown for commercialization in the world. But it just goes to show this untapped source of diversity. And what's interesting is that millets, not only do they bring diversity to fields, because a lot of them have some really unique resistance um, characteristics, like Proso here in the Northwest, very drought resistant. So it plays an important role um, in, depending on where you're at, um, depending on climatic change, etc. Um, but you know, as far as medicinal and functional food characteristics, some of these other millets um, not ones grown so much here, actually have very potent, even medicinal qualities. So there's some really interesting studies coming out of India, and I work a lot with people in India on millet diversification pro projects, where they're actually showing that they've taken whole populations of people and put them on a certain kind of millet as their primary carbohydrate source, and it dropped their hemoglobin A1C level, which is a marker for diabetes, down a significant level that was comparable to taking metformin, which is the most commonly prescribed medication for type 2 diabetes. So those kind of studies beckon us to get more, um, you know, scientific hoopspa going to, to really explore these cereal crops as potential, you know, impact, um, impact crops that could really can, like change the interface of our diet related disease in our nation because they can be blended with other things. So. I'm the co-founder of the North American Millets Alliance. <laughs> it doesn't get any nerdier than that. <laughs> um, just saying. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and we're yes, and we love sorghum too. And and we're 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 bringing sorghum into the fold there and teff, even though it's not technically a millet. But these small cereals hold a lot of potential, and you know because people are waking up to the significant role that they can play in our food systems. Um, so I often can I often think about you know, what could happen and what needs to happen for this market to grow. But, you know, just for a second, looking beyond ancient grains, I just want to give a little quick shout out to modern solutions that bring diversity to our agricultural landscapes. And things like triticale, for example, great example. It's not an ancient grain. It's a modern hybrid, but also has a really potentially significant role in climate resistant um, crop rotations, especially in areas that have really bizarre weather patterns like they're flooding one minute and they're drought the next, like what they're having in Kansas and 
Nebraska, <laughs> where the weather is just wild. And so, you know, we need to create a food sector that adds value to these climate-resilient, healthy crops. I call them neglected crops. And just for a second, I want to talk about the spec sheet expectations on the manufacturing side that kind of hold the entire industry hostage. Because labs around the world have shown that in most commercial applications, you can make accommodations for non-commodity crops. Um, there's been some excellent work done at the California Wheat Commission Labs. If you're a wheat farmer and you're interested in this kind of innovation, reach out to them. Um, they have a really innovative lab there where they're showing that they can make highly commercialized, consistent manufactured products out of grains from non-spec, non-commodity wheats. That's a revolutionizing thing when it comes to market pull-through of commodities and climate impact commodities. So I just wanted to touch on that for a second. But you know what? At the end of the day, money talks. So let's talk profitability. Um, the Palouse has one of the highest concentrations of family health farms in the nation. And we're really lucky in this regard. I mean, compared to the Midwest, I mean, it's, it's, we're a really unique place globally. But right now, if you look around and there is this huge shift of land being sold to private land, you know, wealthy private landholders, private equity, venture capital funds, and they are now going to start dictating the way that we farm. And I mean, I grew up on a farm and I, I just know what my dad would say if he was still alive. He'd be like, there's no way in hell I'm going to let some guy in a high rise in downtown Seattle tell me how to farm. Like, that just wouldn't work for him. And I don't think it's going to work for a lot of people. So I feel like we need to get really um, strategic in this approach and making sure that if there are land acquisitions of critical farmland in our nation, that we're putting the right contracts together so that we dictate that there will be control of decision-making by the farmers that are actually residing on the farms, not being forced by some business guy in a suit who thinks he knows about farming and doesn't. It's actually a really dangerous thing. Farmers have long been trapped in a system that's under intense control by the government and big corporations anyway, which has for a long time limited access to free markets. So let's look at market forecasts for a second. I mean, and you can actually think about market forecasts and compound and annual growth rates kind of like you think about an IRA. And I don't know if you guys have ever had a, an IRA, like a retirement account, but if you've ever had one, I was, I worked at hospitals for a long time. So, you know, you have your little IRA and they're like, do you want high risk and, you know, high risk, high gain, or do you want low risk, low gain? Well, right now with commodity wheat versus ancient grains, we have a similar thing. We have commodity wheat chugging along. Granted, this year is kind of freakish because the wheat prices have skyrocketed. But in general, you look at like the 10, the decade over decade patterns, commodity wheat it just kind of trucks along. Here we have like ancient grains at a 36% compounded annual growth rate projected over the next 10 years. Like that is crazy high growth rate. You think the vegans and all the fake meat people are making strides? I mean, their KGAR is only like 14%. Ancient grains is like doubling what even like Beyond Burger is. So there is a very silent, but very significant opportunity. And this signals that there is a massive consumer momentum that is backing the diversification that needs to happen in the agricultural sector to fulfill this consumer momentum. So super interesting challenge that people who are in farming and in value-added processing, as well as brands like myself, are up against. So now... Um, <clears throat> for the challenge of path to market. <laughs> um, again, if you know me, you know I'm nerdy about millet and I'm also nerdy about the messy middle and value-added processing. Um, so our food system, as we know, has been centralized for a very long time and very monopolistic. Like, generally speaking, 
you know, once crop, like once crops leave the field and go into the value added, you know, all the way to the consumer, they pretty much enter the world of large corporate domination and centralization. It's very hard to penetrate for mid-level people. We have a strong uprising of boutique level value-added processing, like milling, small boutique bakeries happening, but it's more farmer's market level. So we have like boutique farmer's market level, and then we have big, big, big. And the big, big, big dominate 90% of our food system. We need to grow the middle class of value-added processing because as much as I love small boutique farmer's market, it's not scalable. It's not scalable enough to really move the market. It's not small, big enough to move huge acreage. It's not strong enough to move like a massive allocation of acreage in our farmlands over to new and differentiated markets. So I love the innovation that's happening in things of like the green shed. They're like, well, we don't really have the capital to, to build this all just one entity at a time, but all together we can really do something bigger. And I think it's a model that should be replicated and evaluated. And I know it is. In other markets is for scalability, because the challenge here, as we push back on a very monopolized system, is going to be getting creative with our economic um, strategies. And so things like um, co-oping, joint ventures, um, profit sharing models, um, it's kind of like the new like the new world of co-oping. Um, and, and whoever is interested in farming and ag and food systems and business... This is going to be a heyday for those creative people because there's going to be explo- there's going to be an explosion in business opportunities as this whole middle ground starts to become dominated. And so it's important considering that over 20% of Americans are considered food insecure also because you know, you think about like, oh, I love going to the farmers market. I usually can't afford it. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't usually have a ton of cash laying around. So, it's like, you know, that push and pull of like how do we disrupt the market while still having an opportunity for cost competition, access to these products by people who are food insecure, and um, and making sure that we really shift the needle towards nutrient density and higher quality food. So when we think about you know the opposite of big food, you know I think most people immediately think high cost, and, and that's something that we really need to be con- um, thinking about. Um, cheap food is, is, there's no such thing as cheap food when you add in the cost of healthcare and pollution to the environment. But we do need to really take a good hard look at how we can create higher quality food while still keeping it at prices that are obtainable to the average person. So this price advantage, I hear from people all the time, you know, because I own a brand and we, to be alive, we have to be ultra premium. That's how you get started. You can't come in low cost, high quality as a little brand. You don't have any of the scalable um, things that it takes to to be competitive. And sometimes people are like, oh, you guys just want to, you must be rolling in dough. You're just trying to make a lot of money. And it's like, no, you have to think about what makes big food food so cheap. And there are several factors. A, competitive bidding. B, at scale efficient processing. That's a big one. That's where a ton of the price comes in. Three, centralized distribution. If you own your distribution, you save a ton of money right off the top. For deals and partnerships with distributors and retailers. Little brands are never going to get those. But big brands come in and they're like, hey, we'll sell this to you at a 20% discount because they can. And these deals have to do with quantity, not quality. And for decades have ignored the long-term resiliency of this business model. Because it's actually, in effect, created an economy that does is not set up for long-term success. 
and it definitely is not set up for long-term innovation. It makes it incredibly difficult for emerging brands and regional products to enter the market and compete. So the messy middle, a little bit more here. The approach to value-added processing can range from small boutique to large scale vertically integrated. And there are many innovative processes in place that can happen here. And I've had some very fascinating conversations with people around the world recently, and I feel like the innovation overseas is definitely beating us right now when it comes to um, value-added processing. So I was um, involved with some calls with a guy named Chef Pierre Chan of Yulele Foods, and uh, he is from Senegal, and he's developing globally exportable programs for an ancient village there called Fonio. And one of their biggest barriers they had to commercializing Fonio was the fact that the value-added processing was very slow and very wasteful. And we often see that with small cereals. It's one of the things that prohibits commercialization of small cereals. But they got a bunch of kids together, and these were young, like, college students, engineering, and they said, here's our problem, we need to solve this. And they were able to take their waste from 70% loss per pound to single digits and to go from literally, like, 10 pounds an hour to, like, several tons a day just with innovation. It's, it goes to show if you get the right smart people in the right room focused on the right problem, suddenly the problems that we're like, well, we can't do that because, well, it's too wasteful. It doesn't have to be that way. It's only, it, it's only that way because we're, we're not putting our focus on it. I mean, if we can put people on the moon and we can de develop smartphones, we can surely figure out how to create high efficiency, innovative milling, cleaning, and processing for oddball cereal crops like millets. <laughs> so... Co-manufacturing continues to grow as an industry and local companies like even like Clean Copac that used to be called Bumble Bar in Spokane, they've really demonstrated how this industry can grow to serve both local markets and markets outside of our local region. So they're one of the few co-packers that you can actually get what's called line time or tolling time in the Northwest. The Northwest is actually very, very like scarce when it comes to value-added processing compared to other areas. And in fact, um, you know, you look around the world at like, there used to be thousands of mills um, throughout the Northwest. Total, like the Northwest used to be totally dotted with mills. We're now down nationally to having only like 550 mills in the entire nation. Um, with the top volume states being Kansas, California, and Texas. Um, you can't get line time at those places. You can't get line time at most places. So if you're trying to penetrate the market and you don't have access to a mill, your hands are tied. So this is an area that I really feel like as a region, we need to come together and have a call to action because if we're going to create a new economy and we're going to create a incentivized landscape for better quality of farming, we have to have the messy middle figured out so that it's profitable and efficient. Um, again, co-ops, joint ventures, partnerships, the regenerative design model would include these regional efficiencies and these you know, value stream creating um, co co like coalitions of people working together. So leveraging a bottom-up market shift. Um, you think about, you know, the demand for ancient grains. And we, you know, somebody's got, somebody is going to gobble that up. Anytime you have a market that's growing, somebody needs to serve that market. And the way I look at it is we'd be insane to not go there because we are so well situated to leverage that opportunity in the Inland Northwest, uniquely positioned. The only things we really have working against us are those value-added processes, middle 
steps, which is super solvable. And in fact, it could create a whole other industry where people could own businesses, they could employ other people, and they could create economic infrastructure that could put our rural communities back to work. So instead of driving through these beautiful little Washtekna towns and they're all like ghost towns, why not keep our processing here and let people live in rural areas and like breathe life back into our rural communities? And so when you think about the dynamic shift that's going to happen as this whole disruption happens from ag all the way up through to the consumer, all of these areas are going to take a massive hit when it comes to innovation, business growth, um, you know, capitalization, essentially. So think about like the communication apps. I know Ty and Scott and I at FarmSmart um, through Spokane Conservation District are working on building a network platform for farmers so we can help do aggregative business models. So we can say, hey, we've got FarmSmart wheat. Hey, we've got a big buyer who wants FarmSmart wheat. Well, it's too much work for them to call up each individual farmer and say, hey, you know, can I buy this many, you know, whatever, tons. It's aggregative business models are the way of the future if we want to disrupt this system effectively. And it's going to create some really amazing opportunities for coders, um, electronic platforms, community builders, regional collaborations. Um, It's going to be really cool. And there's a huge market development opportunity. Now, capital access is something, I've talked about the regional infrastructure a lot, I kind of beat that horse to death, but capital access is something that often gets overlooked because I think for farmers for so long have been like doing the same thing. They like go to the bank, they get their loans and the loans only will cover XYZ. And it's always been kind of the same capital structure where now capital access is radically differentiating. We have um, much more angel investing happening. We have much more private equity, joint venture capital investments, and they're not all bad. They kind of get a bad rap a lot of the time. People are like, oh God, VCs. But the thing is, is there's actually like unique capital to disrupt markets. And if you find the right capital and you get the right capital with the right people, like magical things can happen. So I think we need to be really transparent and talk about capital access a lot and also invest in other capital access programs like Craft3 Lenders in Spokane. They're some of the few companies that are a nonprofit lender that services like SBDC USDA loans. Businesses that wouldn't normally be able to get those loans, they come in and they take the extra liability off the plate because they're dedicated to creating um, you know, jobs for our area. And so capital access, if you're interested in finance, if you're one of those MBA masochists, <laughs> um, that's, it's, it's going to be a huge explosive category. Um, so I just want people to think about this as like a big opportunity. And then lastly, you know, just thinking about our future and through the lens of the regenerative by design thinking process. Um, I mean, we know things are changing. We know there's underutilized brain some of humans that are growing market momentum. We know that we need to normalize regenerative practices. Like I personally am a huge advocate for organic. But I'm also very frustrated that organic is only 1% of all farmlands. Like, it's just, there's a, there's a fundamental disconnect. And we've got to invest in a transitional process that gives farmers permission to go, you know what, I, I don't like what Scott says. I don't know what I want to do, but I know I want to do something different. Like, something, I'm not happy with what I'm doing. I want to change. I, I want to change this dependency cycle we're on. Regenerative agriculture gives steps in a transition path to start reducing inputs, starting to change your farming models, 
reducing topsoil disturbance. And eventually, if you really implement those steps right, you don't have to go fallow. You don't have to have lost um, productive years. You can have a more financially safe way of transitioning your acreage. And after five, 10 years, you're going to be pretty darn close to organic. And for me, I think that de-risks a lot of the transition because not everybody's up for pulling a Tim Corny and coming back and just betting this whole farm and saying, you know what, I'm switching to organic. And now I've got to create path to market because I can't sell to the same old sales rep that I sold to for the last 50 years. Or like the Bob Quinn way, I'm just going to create a category for a brand new grain no one's ever heard of. I mean, that is not for everybody and it's definitely risky. So I think that normalizing regenerative practice, like what our friends at Farm Smart are doing and what many other organizations across the country are doing, is the right step. And that, like I think about mathematically, and I'd love to get like some math nerds on this, but you know, if you looked at like with regenerative implementation, what the overall reduction of chemical inputs are per acre after implementing regenerative, and, and then you could look at that, it can be huge and at scale, it would ultimately get more chemicals out of our environment than even increasing our organic by another percent. So I just think, again, from a numbers perspective, like getting chemicals out of our environment is a big priority for me. I know it isn't for a lot of farmers, but from someone who spent many, many years at the bedside caring for people in ICUs, I can tell you um, what the what the sales reps tell you is different than what we in the medical field see. And I'll just that I'll leave it at that. So um, biodiversity in the field and diversity in the market, huge focus. This is an action item for you guys as you go home and you're thinking about this. And you're like, God, that was boring, but I'm thinking about biodiversity in the field and diversity in the market. They go hand in hand. And right now, the market is diversifying at a faster rate than we are biodiversifying in the field. And if we don't catch up, guess who's going to win? European markets. We're going to be importing this stuff. I mean, how dumb is that? We, we could do it here and we shift. Developing value-added infrastructure. If you're sitting out there in your tractor and you're like, huh, I wish there was an app for X, tell somebody. Don't just think about it. There's probably some app developer that would love to do it and might even be willing to do it for free. At least an MVP, get an SBIR grant, something like that. Call me if you want to talk about that. Um, collaborative economics and market development. Again, talk to your friends, talk to your neighbors, figure out ways to make this happen because where there's a will, there's a way. And if we just keep saying, well, it just isn't done like that around here, we're going to be going down with the ship. And um, there's just no excuse for it. So I want to thank you guys for your time. I want to have some time for questions. I can't see a clock and I, I could yammer for hours, so I have no idea what time it is. But the best way to predict the future, you guys, is to create it. And I feel like most people in the world aren't lucky enough to have the opportunities we do right here to literally paint a better future. So let's do it all together. And thank you for your attention. And please ask, ask away. <laughs> Hmm? We have about five minutes for questions. Oh, gosh, that's not very many. I yammered a lot longer than I thought. Sorry. And we just started a little late. Oh, okay. Perfect. <laughs> any questions for Joni? Any more? Any comments for the presentation? Yeah, access to capital. So that's a big one, as you and I have talked about a lot, because for me as an entrepreneur, and as an entrepreneur, started a business on like a nurse's wages. I mean, nurses make okay money, but you really don't have anything left at the end of the month after your paycheck comes in to like start a capital intensive business. 
CPG, consumer packaged goods, is a very expensive industry to get into. Um, you literally, no money, no play. Like you are restricted in what you can do. And thank goodness there is a blossoming of interested capital coming into the market from um, angel groups, um, individuals, venture funds, which are, there are now a number of venture funds out there that are specifically focused on regenerative agriculture. Scott and I have had a lot of time with these guys. You know, there is always that disconnect where sometimes they can kind of take on that dude in the suit in San Francisco who's really never been on a field. But the, but the cool thing is, is what I'm seeing more and more is that they're willing to come out and meet you on the field. They're willing to, to like meet you at a factory and be like, here's our problem. We can't de-hold this fox tunnel. Like we've got to, we've got to figure out how to innovate here. And I feel like the reductionistic boxes that we used to vet opportunities in the financial sector are eroding because we're, what we're realizing is that it's always been viewed through the lens of de-risking, but we've de-risked ourselves to the point of riskiness because we've ignored the bigger picture. And that's a realization that a lot of people in the financial sector are like waking up to. And so there is huge innovation happening, even with what's happening with inflation and potential recession, et cetera. Like there is still a lot of money out there looking for innovative impact things to do. And there's a whole growth of an investment sector that's called impact investing. I know some investors who hate it and laugh at it. And I know a lot more who are like, that's awesome. Because what impact investing does is it vets a business opportunity based on return on investment. So, you know, dollars in, dollars out. It, obviously, they want to put money in and make more out. Otherwise, why park your money there? But what they're also looking at is other metrics of impact. Traditionally, these are called ESG. And you might have heard that in the news, ESG investing, ESG businesses. And that stands for environmental social governance. And so environmental metrics are becoming very important. Um, my business, Snackivist, is really judicious in developing um, ESG monitoring tools. And in fact, we're launching one on our packaging this fall, which is going to be interesting. It's going to talk about biodiversity, nutrient density, soil, health, and uh, water conservation, all transparent on the package through QR code um, interface. But investing now is looking at these things as valuable metrics. Like they're saying, hey, our portfolio made X millions of dollars. But guess what? Our portfolio also empowered this many people with great paying jobs that have benefits. Our portfolio investments made this kind of impact on soil carbon health. That our, um, our impacts um, on water are X. And those are becoming drivers that are actually moving the market because we're now measuring them. And you can't, you can't gauge what you don't measure. And so the measurement process is in place now, and that's radically transforming finance. Longer answer than you probably want. Can you get involved in political Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it, that's a huge force. And I, I kind of intentionally left it out just because I, I felt like it's it almost is deserving of its own segment and it can be highly controversial. And so I decided to kind of scoot around that. But the lobbying piece is a big deal and Farm Bill is next year. And one of the things I'm really excited about is now we have huge groups of people in the regenerative world. But also, and this pleases my nurse's heart immensely, we're, we have a whole body of healthcare professionals marching on Washington for the Farm Bill, demanding that the Farm Bill pays attention to health. And so we call this health environment 
and farming food nexus point. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I wish I knew them personally, but that whole group. But I'm, yeah, I'm wanting to get like more involved with that. So. Mm -hmm. It's time because guess what? It, every dollar that goes into the food system ultimately ends up in the healthcare system. Yeah. And uh, we've got to get really real about that because as a healthcare refugee myself, my husband's a healthcare refugee as well. And we're going to have some major problems in our healthcare system coming up for a variety of reasons. And if we don't reduce the burden of diet-related disease in our healthcare setting, we are in for major, major troubles. Because when you come in for trauma, you're going to be up a creek because everyone else is taking up the beds. So, one more? Nate? So, really quick, um, policy here farm I would wait to actually say farm now. Yeah. Can you describe to me how farm insurance works on the grants that you're working with? I know it's sort of the economics challenge. Yeah. And every time in Washington, especially with this administration, we talk about the thing about kind of smart ag. But there are systems, systemic problems. Totally. Yeah, that's a huge point. And in fact, like one of our pro millet farmers in North Dakota, we've been talking to him for four years, but his insurance, he would lose his crop insurance on his entire farm if he planted millet because it wasn't in the approved bundle of crops. He advocated along with other farmers in his region. It took three years of nonstop um, to get that to be changed. So that's a really important point. Um, it can't be overstated. Like these are these systems that are like in place that are hampering the free market development and creativity of the farming industry. Yeah, government and odd big corporate interests like insurance <laughs> and food. Yeah, yeah. All right, thanks guys. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. If you would like to learn more about the principles of regenerative food systems and agriculture, please see the show notes for links to education, a glossary, and guest information. This podcast was brought to you by Snacktivist Inc., a leader in the regenerative food industry. We create delicious foods from regenerative ingredients that are soil-focused, minimize water use, and maximize carbon sequestration, all while radically impacting human nutrition. Learn more about our work at snacktivistfoods.com.